Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, Easter According to the Gospel of John, with a message titled, The Burial of Jesus Christ. So turning your Bibles to John chapter 19, verses 38 to 42, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I wonder if you've ever thought about the significance of the burial of Jesus. I bet most of us haven't. And there's a reason for that. See, the natural tendency, I think, is to move quickly from the death of Jesus to the resurrection of Jesus. I mean, after all, his death is the substitutionary sacrifice for our sins, and his resurrection demonstrates that he's the Son of God, and it also assures all who believe that we will be raised like him. And furthermore, when it comes to celebrations, well, the Christian church in the past, well, we have celebrated something called Monday Thursday. That's a celebration of the events in the upper room and the washing of the disciples' feet. And then, of course, Good Friday, the celebration of his death, and then Easter Sunday. The tomb, to many of us, is only remembered insofar as it was empty. I mean, what more could be said about the burial of Jesus outside of the fact that, you know, the grave couldn't hold him, and that's, you know, good and glorious news. And yet today I want us to linger at the grave of Jesus. I want us to contemplate that his body was laid in a tomb, so why that? And I want to do this because the gospel writers, including John, take the time to explain it, but also because the tomb of Jesus became an article of faith in the early church. I mean, consider Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4. He writes, Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. So notice that in this short passage, Paul is explaining the nature of the gospel. I want to remind you of the gospel, he says. It's of first importance, he says. That is, the most important thing any Christian can ever learn are the basic principles of the gospel. And no, no, the gospel is not about political action or environmentalism or feeding the poor and addressing matters of social concern, as important as those matters might be. I'm not denigrating those things. I'm simply stating the obvious. Those are not matters of first importance. Of first importance is the gospel. And then, according to Paul, there are three matters that must be stressed. And as I've said, the first, the death of Jesus for our sins, well, that's obvious. Or at the very least, it should be obvious for everyone who believes. And the third is also obvious that he was raised according to the scripture. But Paul adds this second element, an element, you know, we've not noticed. It's the burial of Jesus. This, says Paul, is also a matter of first importance. You know, on this note, did you know that one of the most important famous confessions of the faith that came out of the Reformation was the Westminster Confession? And Article 50 of the larger confession contains a full article on Christ's burial. And so today, from the Gospel of John, we're going to recount the actual burial of Jesus. And once having done that, let's take the time and reflect why it is that the burial of Jesus is of such significance and also what that means for us today. What does the Bible want us to learn about the Lord's burial? So let's read our text, John 19, 38 to 42. 
After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with these spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. As we consider the actual burial of Jesus, let's consider three aspects of it. First, let's look at the people who buried him. Second, the conditions of his burial. And finally, the place of his burial, the actual tomb itself. So let's start with the two men who buried Jesus. John, in our account, begins with the words, after this. That is, after the soldier had thrust a spear into Jesus' side and ascertained that he had truly died after that. You know, I mentioned before that under normal conditions, the Romans would allow an executed criminal to simply remain hanging on the cross as the body decomposed. And so vultures would begin to gather and they'd gorge themselves on decaying flesh. It leaves a macabre scene for everyone who cared to observe it. I mean, all that was calculated so that the rest of the population would be intimidated and take seriously the charge to remain obedient to Rome. You know, but as we've seen, the, the First Testament forbade a body to remain on the tree after execution, lest the entire land should be defiled. And so the bodies would be taken down before they decayed. Now, undoubtedly, what would have been planned is that they'd be simply thrown in an unmarked grave in a place of uncleanness. And then surprisingly, Joseph of Arimathea steps forward. What do we know about this man? Well, the first thing is quite simply what the text tells us. He was a secret disciple of Jesus. He remained that because of his fear of the Jewish religious authorities. Now, since there were many open followers of Jesus, I mean, why did Joseph have reasons to fear? Now, as I've said before, when reading the Gospel of John, since John was written sometime after the other three Gospels are written, John simply assumes that his readers are aware of a lot of the material in the other three Gospels. So John assumes his readers know the name Joseph of Arimathea. Mark 15:43 calls him a respected member of the council. That is, he was a respected member of the Sanhedrin. Now, stop for a moment and consider that. Jesus has just been condemned by the Sanhedrin. Where was Joseph in all of that? Now, I suspect that when the time came for a vote to condemn Jesus, that Joseph would not have voted for it. But given that he was a secret follower of Jesus, we, we have to assume that he simply kept his head down and said very little. And that leads us to a more telling question. Do you remember what Jesus taught about this matter? Matthew 10, 32 to 33. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. So let that thought linger for a moment as we consider what else the Bible tells us about Joseph of Arimathea. According to Matthew 27, 57, he was a rich man. And that might explain why it is that he feared openly declaring his allegiance to Jesus. Too much was at stake. Perhaps he was like, you know, the rich man, the one whom Jesus had told to leave all his riches and come and follow him. I mean, perhaps Joseph feared that it was just too much to openly declare Jesus. I mean, what of the financial cost? And yet, with all that can be said about him, would you also notice that according to Luke 23, verse 51, and according to John, 
that he was looking forward to the coming of the kingdom of God. He longed for the end of the world of sin and death. He anxiously awaited for the coming of the Messiah. And he also must have believed that Jesus was the fulfillment of everything he had hoped for. And yet in many ways, he was intimidated. Now, lest we think that we're too easy to condemn this man, let's also remember that Peter, the leader of the Twelve, had also just denied Jesus. And as we will see as we continue our study in John, Jesus took the time to restore Peter, the man who had denied him before others. And that's exactly what we will find in Joseph of Arimathea. All that secretiveness, all that cowardice, you know, of all time for it to come to an end, came not when Jesus rode in triumph into Jerusalem or when he rose from the dead, but it came to an end when Jesus died. John says it was still the day of preparation, which means that the sun hadn't set on Friday. Joseph finds courage. It's amazing because everyone else is deserted. As Luke tells us of the disciples on the road to Emmaus, I mean, they come to the conclusion that the story of Jesus had ended in failure. They were simply going home in despair. But Joseph gathers his courage where previously he had none. He goes to Pilate. He asks to take possession of the body of Jesus. Because he's a respected member of the Jewish authority, Pilate grants him his request, and suddenly Joseph's secret life of being a Jesus follower is over. Now everyone knows his convictions. And of course, Pilate is surprised to hear that Jesus is already dead. He summons the centurion who oversaw the matter and hears, yep, it's so. Jesus of Nazareth is hanging completely dead on the cross. And so Pilate gives Joseph permission to do with the body what he wants. If he has in mind to offer Jesus a dignified burial, so may it be. Now then only John mentions that Joseph didn't act alone. You know, it must have been that Joseph and Nicodemus knew each other, and perhaps it was that they had often met to trade stories about what Jesus is doing. No doubt, since Nicodemus himself had once met with Jesus, and we read about that in John chapter 3, that Joseph and Nicodemus has discussed what Jesus must have meant when he had told Nicodemus that one needed to be born again to enter into the kingdom of God. There are a number of commentators who also believe that it's highly likely that it was both Joseph and Nicodemus together, both of them were members of the Sanhedrin. Two men, powerful and respected in their own right, and yet intimidated in the day of great evil, and now finding their courage and deciding they're secret followers of Jesus no more. The Bible speaks to the community of believers as the body of Christ. Christians are the hands and feet, voice and heart of God. The Spirit who unites us works through us to do His will. The ministries of Back to the Bible Canada rely on these principles. As Dr. John reminds us, the most effective missions, the most effective outreach of the church is almost never accomplished alone. Partnership is always key. We're deeply appreciative for those who join us in mission through their prayers and financial gifts. Faithfully presenting the Word of God across Canada cannot be the effort of a single part. It requires a partnership with God's people. If you wish to support the mission of this ministry or become an 1119 Fellowship Monthly Partner, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Thank you. 
What Joseph and Nicodemus did to the body of Jesus would soon be heard in the Sanhedrin. Soon the reputation they had of being influential in that judicial body would lie in ruins. But amazingly, these two men decide to put it all on the line on that Friday when Jesus had already died and all hope seemed to have disappeared. And so Joseph has been to Pilate, and now the two men openly cooperate. Here we come to the second part of our story, and this is the story of the care they exercise over the dead body of Jesus. Joseph provides the linen bandages, and Nicodemus provides the spices and aromatics. And here we need to note that it was not the Jewish tradition to embalm bodies. Of course, we know from history that it was the Egyptians who were made famous for their embalming of bodies, but other cultures did that as well. But in order for the Egyptians to embalm, as we learn from, you know, Genesis 50 verse 3, 40 days were required for that extensive process. That process would, you know, involve the removal of internal organs and fill that space with spices. But in the time of Jesus and before, the Jews didn't embalm. They would commit the body back to the one who made it, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, and they would use spices and place them over the body to hide the odor of decay. And so in this case, Nicodemus supplies 75 pounds of mixture of myrrh and aloes. You know, I don't know the expense of that, but, you know, the amount would be a lot. And we have to imagine that it would have come at a significant cost. And the point here is that the two men decide that they're going to treat the body of Jesus with reverence and respect. And if you think about it, that's a biblical value. It's shared by both Christians and Jews of the Old Testament. And of course, we come now to the third part of the story, and it's the story of the tomb. You know, John doesn't mention it, but the other gospel writers do. According to Matthew 27, verse 6, it was Joseph himself who owned this tomb. If you want a contemporary point of comparison, I mean, you think about those people who purchase a burial plot for themselves and for their spouse before they died. So in a way, that's the same tradition. Now, in that day, great many burial caves were communal caves. One body was laid there, but there was room in those caves, additional funeral benches for additional family members to be buried together. And so it was often the case that at a time of burial, a cave would be reopened and then a body would be placed alongside of the other bodies that had died earlier. But in this case, this burial cave was brand new. And that leaves us with a question, where was the cave? Well, look again at verse 41 because it says, now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. That is to say, the place of the tomb was very close to the place of the crucifixion. Look again at verse 42, which reemphasizes that point. The tomb is close at hand. That is very close to the place of the cross. And so it would not have taken a great deal of effort for those two men to take the body to the burial cave. It was all completed before the sun set on that day, Friday. If you go to Jerusalem today, you're going to find a garden tomb, which looks very much like it would have looked in Jesus' day. I think, however, that's not the burial site of Jesus. I would highly recommend going there because it gives an accurate feel of what that place was like. I think the burial site is indeed today where a large church stands on top of it. That's the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Unfortunately, the original look of the place has been obscured. Well, very well, the burial of Jesus. But why is that so important? Let me suggest four reasons why the burial of Jesus is essential. First, the burial of Jesus is certain evidence that Jesus was dead. See, the resurrection story is not a story of Jesus appearing to have died only to show himself to his disciples later. 
I love what, you know, the late J. Vernon McGee said about that. He once received a note from a listener who said that her preacher had said that Jesus had just swooned and that his disciples had nursed him back to health. And here was McGee's response. He said, Dear sister, beat your preacher with a leather whip with 39 heavy strokes, nail him to a cross, hang him in the sun for six hours, run a spear through his heart, and then put him in an airless tomb for three days and see what happens. (laughs) Indeed. And that's the first lesson that we need to take heart from the tomb of Jesus. It's certain evidence, as if we needed more of it, that Jesus bound in linen burial cloth was sealed in a tomb. His body was dead. The evidence is overwhelming. Second, the burial of Jesus is a fulfillment of the prophetic scriptures. So let's go to Isaiah 53, verse 9, and the prophet, speaking of the death of the Messiah, says, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Isaiah had not only predicted the sufferings and the death of the Messiah, he also predicted that he would be placed in a rich man's tomb. But as we talk about fulfilled prophecy, we also learn that Jesus himself had predicted not just his death, but also his burial. Matthew 12, verse 40, Jesus is saying, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Yeah, Jesus said he would be placed into the earth for three days. So the burial of Jesus provides us with both evidence of his death as well as fulfillment of Scripture. Is there anything more? Yes, there is. Third, the burial of Jesus speaks a word to us who fear death. You know, in the First Testament, there's so much about the grave that fills us with dread. Genesis 37, we hear Jacob being deceitfully told by his sons that Joseph had been killed, and of course, Jacob begins to weep. Genesis 37 verse 35 says, all his sons and all his daughters rose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Well, Sheol was the land of the dead and the grave is a fitting symbol of the land of the dead. It's the entry point to the place where the dead reside. David speaks about this at the time when Saul was hunting for him to take his life. He writes, 2 Samuel 22, 5 and 6, For the waves of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. See, that's the ultimate nightmare, to have one's enemies so gain victory over you that they usher you into the grave. But from my vantage point, there is no more plaintive cry than the one that's found in Psalm 88. It's a psalm of one of the sons of Korah. It's the cry of a man who stands at the brink of death. Listen to the words of verses 3 to 5, and as you listen to them, listen to the word, the grave. So here's the passage. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. And that's what the grave represents. It represents the place where those lie whose memory has been cut off. And then in that same psalm, the son of Korah says, I'm reading verse 11, is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Indeed, that is the question. So it seems to me that lacking further revelation, the author of this psalm testifies he doesn't know. 
The grave is the place where eventually all memory is cut off. And of course, that's true. It's what the grave represents in the face of those in our day who, you know, unthinkingly often say always remembered. Well, in truth, the reality of the grave says in a short period of time, all remembrance is lost. And so the grave of Jesus represents the full reality of death. He's assigned to the grave, and in that, his enemies truly want to shut him off from the land of the living. Enough time will pass, and he will be forgotten. And that's what's occurred to Jesus. His grave is the place of utter and complete humiliation and failure. And that leads to my fourth lesson about the grave. It's not only evidence of Jesus' very real death, of the fulfillment of prophecy, that he was assigned a place of utter humiliation, but also the grave is a place of hope. Don't you see, the grave is the last place on earth for every believer that expresses union with Christ to also express our solidarity with him. Union with Christ, among other things, teaches us that our lives as believers, that is, the life of Jesus and our lives, are bound to one another for all eternity. And so our lives are lived in Jesus. And the reason why believers die is that God has given death to us as a gift, that we should die in Jesus and with Jesus. But that's also true of Jesus' grave. As Jesus was laid in a grave, so also will we be laid in a grave. But as the grave of Jesus could not hold him, so also, since we are one in Christ, united with him, so also the grave to which we are assigned will not hold us, brothers and sisters. And it's for that reason that Romans 6 reminds us that our baptism is a baptism with Christ unto death and that we are raised in baptism to newness of life. Oh, what a glory to stand beside the tomb of Jesus, knowing this is the treasure that we find there. Thanks, John. You know, I know that reflecting upon uh, the tomb is important, but how should it impact us personally? Well, uh, you know, we should remember that everything that was done was done uh, according to the set plan of God, but was also done for our benefit. So when we think about the tomb of Jesus and that he was, you know, placed into a tomb and that he experienced death fully, that he went to death, even death on a cross, um, you know, we need to remember that all of these things give great hope and encouragement that death could not hold him. Of course, that's central to the, the Christian message, but also that Jesus is now proved to be Lord and God because of his mastery over death, but also that we will be raised to be like him. I mean, all these things are essential. Thanks again, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Easter According to the Gospel of John, right here on Back to the Bible Canada. Bible teaching you can trust. There is no event more significant to the body of Christ than Easter. It's a time to reflect on the ultimate sacrifice made by Jesus that paid the price for humanity's sins. To help us reflect on this holy occasion, we put together a special short-form video feature of select scriptures from Dr. John's new series, Easter According to the Gospel of John. We believe this video will help prepare your heart for Easter. So all you need to do is head over to the Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel or visit our website at backtothebible.ca. 
And while you're there, don't forget to click the subscribe button and never miss another ministry feature video. Thank you for all you do to support this ministry. For more information or to gift this ministry with your support, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.